There once was a very wealthy man uh, whose wife died, and that left kind of a hole in his life, and so he was trying to think of something that he could do to help fill that void, and so uh, he developed a passion for art collecting. And he wanted to get his only son involved, so he had his son begin traveling with him around the world and visiting various art galleries and at the same time going to art auctions so that he could um, buy pieces of art that were beautiful and were famous and he had the means to which to purchase them. And so he would go to different auctions and bid on these paintings and his son uh, would travel with him and they ended up buying priceless works by Picasso and by Van Gogh and Monet and many other uh, paintings. And the mansion in which he lived in, just the walls were covered with priceless uh, works of art. And he and his son uh, did this for many years, and the collection kept building and building until the point that uh, he was known around the world as having an art collection that would rival some museums and and. Art collectors around the world were impressed with the amount of original art from famous uh, painters that he had in his home. Well, it so happens that there was a war that engulfed the nation, and the young man, uh, this man's son, uh, left to fight in the war. And he wasn't in the war but just a few short weeks when the father received a telegram that his uh, beloved son had been killed while carrying another uh, 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 soldier uh, to safety. And um, that, of course, upset the man greatly to lose his last family member, but also he lost his friend in art collecting. It's something that his son and uh, and him had in common, and uh, once again, a, a void was left in his life, but he continued Uh, to collect art and continue to travel the world to try to find uh, those rare pieces that he could add to his art collection. And his art collection continued to increase in value year after year, not only because of the new things that he purchased, but because of the idea of the rarity of the items he already had that kept increasing in value year after year. Well, a couple years later, there was on a Christmas time period a knock on the door of his mansion, and there was there in front of the door when he opened it a soldier. And the soldier uh, was standing there and had a very large package in his hand, and uh, the man introduced himself by saying, I was a friend of your son, and I was the one he was rescuing when he died. And um, he asked um, if it was okay if he came in for a few minutes and talked to the man. And the father said, yes, it's good to know someone who is a friend of my son. And certainly if my son gave his life for you, then we need to talk. When the man came in, the soldier came in, carrying this very large package. And the man could tell by the way that it was wrapped that it was a painting of some type. And um, they started talking for a little bit about the circumstances of what happened when his son died. And talked about his son and the memories that they both had of him. And then... Uh, The man says, I want to give you something. I want to show you something. And he proceeded to tear the brown paper off of the frame of the uh, picture that he had brought with him. And he says, I am an artist, and I know that you and your son loved paintings, and I have painted this painting of your son. 
And the father looked at it, and as he looked at it, he realized that, that, that the man, though he called himself an artist, he really wasn't that much of an artist, but yet uh, the portrait that this man painted uh, was very close to the likeness of his son. And, and in fact, the more the man looked at it, he could uh, see, some of the man, see some of his son's personality in the lines that were drawn on the, on the canvas. And so um, he thanked the man uh, for the painting and, and um, took it into his house and he put it up in a prominent place, even though it wasn't one of those great works of art that he spent so much money for. But it was his son and it was a painting that was done in love and it was a painting that really came from the heart. Well, a few more years passed and... The old man, as time went on, of course, got older. And as he got older, his life began to deteriorate, and he eventually uh, became ill, and he died. Well, the news of his death, when it reached the art world, it just got everybody all excited. Uh, people began to talk with great anticipation was what, with what was about to happen because they understood in the art world that something had to be done with this great art collection that this man had, had gathered together. And that was the opportunity for art collectors all over the world to get some paintings that they couldn't get their hands on because this man had already had them. And so they knew that there would be some type of art auction when the man's estate was settled. And so people were very excited about it. And sure enough, the man's will, as far as executing his will, was pointed out that all of the art that he has collected down through the years uh, was going to be auctioned. Well... The day came time for the uh, art auction, and everybody uh, gathered together. There were art collectors from all over the world. Uh, they'd come to bid on some of the most spectacular paintings the world had ever seen. The auction began, kind of strange though, with a painting that wasn't on the list. It was the painting of the man's son that the shoulder, I don't know why I can't say that word tonight, uh, that the military man had had painted of his son. And um, so they put it up on the easel here of his son, uh, this very crude painting, and the auctioneer said, who will open bidding with $100? And minutes passed by and the room was deadly silent. There were art collectors there. They wanted their very rare pieces of art. They wanted the ones that the world had been trying to get their hands on. And here it was, this first painting was something that really nobody wanted. It had no sentimental value to anybody. It wasn't that good of a painting. But yet, here was the very first painting. And so once again, the auctioneer said, Who will give me $100 for this painting? And finally, through the silence, someone called out, Who cares about this painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget it and get on to the more important pieces. Other voices echoed in agreement. But the auctioneer stood his ground and said, No, according to the will of the father, this picture of his son has to be sold first. Now who will take the son? Finally, after a few moments, a friend of the old man in the back said, Well, I knew the boy. And I knew how much this man loved the son, so I'd like to have it. I will bid $100. The auctioneer says, we've got to bid for $100. Is there anybody else like to bid higher? Does anybody give me $200? 
And some time passed, and he said, any higher? Anybody want to go any higher? Finally, the auctioneer said, after a long silence, going once, going twice, gone, and the gavel fell. Cheers filled the room, and someone said, now we can get on with it. But the auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room. And after a few moments, someone spoke up and asked, What do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all the paintings? And the auctioneer said, It's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the son gets it all. The scripture that Smitty read for us a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 53, I think is a scripture that relates to this particular illustration that I use, this story. But in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, the prophet Isaiah, talking about the Messiah, talking about God's anointed one, talking about Jesus Christ, notice what he says about the prophecy concerning this man. The King James puts it this way, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now what the prophet Isaiah is stating there is when Jesus is on this earth, there's nothing about him as a man that would strike us as being a thing of beauty. I know oftentimes we see artists paint, paint pictures of Jesus Christ and, and they'll paint this very handsome man or sometimes they'll paint, paint him with almost feminine qualities and they make him look like he's almost angelic in the way that he looked. Uh, but in real life, if Isaiah is true and what he says here, and I believe what Isaiah says, Jesus was not someone that you would look at and say there's something about that man. There's not anything about him when say, well, that's the most perfect male species of the male of the species I've ever seen. He's the most handsome man I've ever looked at. No, if the prophecy is true, that nothing about Jesus would make you think that he is a work of art, if you will. When God sent his son Jesus to live on this earth as a man, he seemed to live on this earth as a man. Didn't send him to live here as some type of special type of man. He sent him to live a life as a normal man. Now, of course, he was all God, too, as much as he was man. But yet, at the same time, uh, there wasn't some kind of superhuman quality about him. The things that Jesus Christ did when he was on this earth to prove that he was the Son of God was he was totally dependent upon God and lived a perfectly obedient life. But that doesn't mean he was the most beautiful-looking person the world had ever seen. In fact, once again, if the Scripture is correct, uh, he was really not something to look at. And so I think about that particular verse, and I think about the story that I just read, and I imagine that um, when people started looking at Jesus while he was on the earth and he claimed to be the Son of God, they would say, well, you're the Son of God? In fact, the implications through the Gospels is as the Pharisees and other religious leaders looked at Jesus and as the nation of Israel looked at Jesus, they finally came to the conclusion that, they really, that he really wasn't the man they were looking for. And so verse 3 of the text says, He is despised and rejected of men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted as with, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In other words, they rejected him because he was not the kind of man that they wanted. But here's another thing about this story that I appreciate, and it's this particular fact. Those of us who actually realize who Jesus is, and actually realize to take the time to figure out that he was the, the, indeed the Son of God as others did during his time and as others did in the first century. We appreciate the fact that he is the one that is going to get us to God. As, John, as Jesus says in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. When we realize that, just like in this story, when we're willing to accept the Son... We get it all. We get it all. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. And I want you to look at verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. I was trying to think of some verses that help illustrate the fact that we get it all when we're willing to accept the Son. Once we accept Jesus Christ... There's so many things that we get. Uh, we get salvation from our sins. Uh, we get to have unspeakable joy. We get to have the peace that passeth understanding. But a verse that sums up, I think, the fact that as in this story we get it all, you find in Romans chapter 8, in verses uh, 15 and 16, or 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, I don't know how many times you've actually thought about the emphasis of this particular passage. But what Paul is saying here, that the Holy Spirit should tell us, because we have obeyed what the Holy Spirit told us to do, and the Holy Spirit's what inspired this book, and there are the commandments there, and what a person needs to do to become a Christian, and thus accepting the Son. If we accept the Son, what the rest of this verse is saying is that we get it all. We get everything. Because notice what it says. We are referred to now as the children of God, and if we're referred to as the children of God, that means that we are now a part of the inheritance that God's going to give someone. Who else is a son of God? And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now think about that for a moment. Now the story I was talking about, of course, it's not a true story, but it does illustrate a very powerful point. But if the story was real and the son was still alive when the old man died, who do you think all those priceless works of art would have gone to? They would have gone to the son. He would have received everything that that old man had. He would have received the entire inheritance. But instead, the son died and it had to be given to somebody else. In a sense, Jesus had everything in heaven. If you will, everything that was God's was Jesus. In fact, we talked about this in the book of Philippians, how that even though Jesus was equal with God, he didn't 
think that he needed to hang on to that, but instead he emptied himself and became a man, a man that was even obedient unto death. And so in a sense, we have the son dying just like we have in this story. And so the inheritance is now going to be shared with someone else. But the point is, if we accept the son, then we're going to get the same inheritance that Jesus got because the text says we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so we know that when Jesus died, he was resurrected on the third day, on a Sunday, and he now lives with God forever, lives in God's glory as God's Son of God. And the implication of the text, once again, is that we will get to experience the same thing. In other words, we're going to get it all. I may mention of the fact that um, Jesus rose again on the third day, and this, of course, is the day that um, the religious world celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the greatest things that we get when you get it all is that we get eternal life. Even as I talked about in our lesson this morning, uh, Jesus came to release those captives who were being held in captivity. And the two things that were holding us in captivity is sin and death. He died on the cross to take care of the sin problem. He rose from the grave on the third day, on the first day of the week, to help us with our death problem, if you will. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking about a story I read just recently about a joke that was heard around the Pentagon. A Pentagon, and, and I know we have several men in the, and women in this congregation who have served in the armed forces, and maybe this is something you've heard before, and maybe this is something you can agree with. But there's a joke concerning the armed forces that goes around the Pentagon, Pentagon that I'm told, how that in the different branches of the armed forces that they don't speak the same language. And the joke goes like this. If you told someone in the Navy to secure a building, they would go into that building and they would turn off the lights and lock the door. If you told someone in the Army to secure the building, they would occupy that building and make sure no one went into it. If you told a Marine to secure the building, they would assault the building, capture it, and defend it with suppressive fire as long as they could. And I know Mike and, and Mike and Eliza will like this one. If you told someone in the Air Force to secure the building, they would take out a three-year lease with an option to buy. Now, it seems to me that there's some misunderstanding about what the term secure the building means. But there's also some misunderstanding in, in the first century as far as re regarding securing a specific location there in Palestine. You will open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, and let's look at just a couple verses, beginning at verse 62, and then I'll close our lesson out. But Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 62, listen to this particular account about what happened after Jesus died. It says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, 
Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now here is some confusion about what it means to secure the building. Jesus says, if you put me to death, I will rise again in three days. The Jews thought, well, there's a way to put an end to this. We'll just simply secure the building. And their idea of securing the building, if you will, or the tomb, was to roll a big rock in front of it. But they didn't realize who they were trying to keep behind that rock. Mere rocks are unable to hold back the one who created the entire universe. And so that early Sunday morning, that very first true Lord's Day, Jesus Christ came forth from the grave to live and to never die again. Thus illustrating to us forever that we too are going to have eternal life. You see, if you accept the Son, you get it all. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, uh, we beg of you, we implore of you to become one before it's everlastingly too late. If you accept the Son... Even though he's the one who died on the cross, even though he was the one that perhaps to look at, maybe not that good looking of a man. But yet if you accept the son, you get it all. You get forgiveness of your sins. You get eternal life. You become an heir of God because you're now a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But all of us who are here tonight who are Christians never lose sight of the fact that because we are Christians, uh, we get it all. Because we have accepted the Son, we get it all. And always let that be your motivating factor as you live the Christian life. Not to turn your back on it, but to keep striving for that day when we finally receive our final inheritance. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?